coming up on the Mission Readiness Podcast. And in school, we received free hot lunch. And those were the best meals that we had of the day. And uh, those investments in nutrition for those four young boys made all the difference. Um, Three out of the four of us joined the Army. Um, We all were able to serve our country. And um, I think that the investment that the the nation made providing nutrients to us as young people um, has been paid tenfold. Mission Readiness is the organization of retired admirals and generals working to prepare America's youth for success. Join us as we talk with respected leaders about the challenges facing our next generation. And now, retired U.S. Army Brigadier General Rich Gross and Mission Readiness National Director Ben Goodman. Welcome to the Mission Readiness Podcast. I'm Rich Gross, your host. With me, as always, our National Director of Mission Readiness, Ben Goodman. Ben, how are you? I'm great, General Gross. How are you? I'm doing really well. I can't tell you how excited I am about today's podcast. And let me give you the backstory for our listeners. Uh, Less than a week ago, I read an article in the New York Times about, it was an op-ed piece entitled, the hidden punishment of prison food. And it was talking about prison food and how bad it was, but it also had a section in the middle about a man, a commissioner named Randy Liberty in Maine, who has figured out innovative ways to improve food at prisons. It was fascinating to me. I sent it to Ben and in less than what, two or three days, you had him lined up for us to record this podcast today. Well, it's funny, General Gross. I was reading through the article and I recognized the name Randy Liberty immediately. I'm from Maine and worked in the Maine congressional delegation before I came to Mission Readiness, including on some opioid um, abuse prevention work that uh, Randy Liberty was was involved in. And um, I immediately reached out to our Maine director. And because Maine is small and people tend to be responsive, by the end of the day, we were going back and forth on a date. But uh, Randy Liberty, the uh, commissioner of corrections in, in Maine, just has an incredible personal story. And uh, the work he's doing on prison food, um, pretty incredible. Well, and he belongs to one of our sister organizations, uh, which which is we're going to get him to talk about. Uh, and he's also a 24-year Army veteran. And so he was a military police, uh, enlisted military police, and retired as a command sergeant major. So we're going to hear about that as well. Really excited. So let's get to our podcast today with Commissioner Randy Liberty of the Maine Department of Corrections. Last week, I read a fascinating New York Times opinion piece by Patricia Lee Brown entitled The Hidden Punishment of Prison Food. And the article discussed some of the issues with food that prisons typically serve to prisoners and featured some innovative changes being made in the main prison system. These changes are being led by our podcast guest today, Commissioner Randy Liberty, the head of the Maine Department of Corrections. Commissioner Liberty has more than 36 years of leadership experience in the field of corrections and law enforcement, having served as the warden of the Maine State Prison since 2015. Randy's also been a member of our sister organization, Fight Crime, Invest in Kids, for quite some time. He's a former Army enlisted soldier, he's a certified master gardener, and he's a beekeeper. So I'm really excited about our guest today. Welcome to the podcast, Commissioner. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, we're just thrilled to have you on. Thanks for coming. Besides your distinguished career in law enforcement, as I mentioned, you, you spent more than 24 years of service in the United States Army. How'd you come to enlist in the military and how did that lead you to law enforcement? 
Sure. So um, for me, joining the Army was, um, was a way to sort of break the poverty cycle. Um, my brothers and I were all raised in a, in a very sort of um, a difficult environment. My father was actually incarcerated. Um, and uh, we, um, you know, saw as a way to kind of break that cycle. And so that's what we did. My brother, Ron, uh, graduated a year before me, and he joined the Army as a military policeman. Uh, back at Fort Evans, Massachusetts, when that was open. And um, six months into it, he uh, invited me down and, and uh, uh, three hot meals, even had hot water. And so um, I thought it was a really good environment. And um, I liked the structure. Um, I played sports in high school, and, and it was a very similar sort of a, a team feel. I loved the fellowship. And, and, um, and so I did. I joined in uh, my, my senior year, uh, November of my senior year, a delayed entry program. And I went down to Fort McClellan, Alabama, where the military police school used to be. And um, I became uh, a military policeman. I was stationed in Korea which was a great duty station and, and uh, really grew me significantly as a law enforcement officer and as a person um, living with um, many uh, Koreans augmented in the United States Army, Katusas, and uh, they were my roommates and I fully enjoyed that. And that's where I began my law enforcement career in the Army. I did three years of uh, active duty, uh, as I said, in Korea and Fort Riley, Kansas. And then I came off active duty and spent seven years in the National Guard in a mountain infantry unit. And um, Went to jump school, air assault school, and did all those things. Went to Italy uh, for a period of time and spent time with the, the Italian uh, Alpinis in northern um, or northern Italy. And uh, then I was a drill sergeant for seven in the reserves at Fort Benning and Fort Leonardwood. And I enjoyed that mentorship, working with those young 18-year-old um, great Americans that uh, want to be soldiers. And, and that was fantastic. And then I had an opportunity to teach at West Point. And I did that for three years, teaching military science 101 and 102 to the, the new cadets. And uh, in 2004, I had the opportunity to uh, join a MIT team embedded in, in an Iraqi infantry battalion in the city of Fallujah. And I was real honored to fight with the 1st Marine Division. And um, we spent 10 months in Fallujah in 04 and 05. And um, following that, I retired as a command sergeant major in 2006. That's a fantastic military career. How did you end up after all that with the main Department of Corrections? So because I served in the Army Reserve and then in the Army National Guard, they gave me an opportunity to go to college and, um, and work in the civilian world. Um, when I was going to school, I worked at a municipal law enforcement agency. I also worked at a uh, correctional facility in Somerset County. And then in, uh, in 1989, I joined the Kennebec County Sheriff's Office. And I did 24 years there. I was a sergeant, staff sergeant. I was a major. I was the chief for five years and I was the elected chair for nine. And um, after, after serving 26 years there, I ended up uh, retiring and was hired as the, uh, as the warden of the main state prison. I did that for three years. And when Governor Mills was elected in 2019, she selected me as her commissioner uh, managing the, the prison system in the entire state. Well, I mentioned earlier our sister organization, Fight Crime Invest in Kids. There are over 5,000 law enforcement leaders nationwide who work to support interventions to steer kids away from crime and towards success. Why were you compelled to join that organization? Uh, in Maine, we have a, a really good uh, unity of uh, law enforcement leaders that uh, believe in investing in our children. Um, as, a, um, as a young person that uh, was in a very difficult financial situation, um, I, I was uh, dependent upon free hot lunch, uh, surplus food. Um, earlier on in, in the 70s, um, we had um, those were the, the meals that we received at school were the best meals of the day for us. And so, um, and I also saw 
um, many, many years working the road and being in many homes, uh, the challenges that uh, young people face today. Um, many difficult uh, financial circumstances, uh, some parenting uh, not adequate, um, housing a problem, and uh, also a struggle to find um, adequate um, um, early childhood care and education. And so when I saw that these were the goals, uh, nutritional goals and educational goals for youth, knowing that uh, I'm spending about $50,000 a year to house an inmate um, at the Maine State Prison, um, I recognize the importance of investing early on. Our most precious resource are our children. They're our future leaders. Um, they're the ones that will be uh, taking the helm and from us. And um, so it was a very ob obvious uh, um, collaboration for me to assist those people. Uh, in particular, Kim's the director here in the state of Maine, and she's fantastic at unifying everybody, organizing uh, law enforcement leadership, and she provides us the inspiration to, to join this, this group. So you think it's important to put kids on the right track early? Oh, critical. Uh, the things that uh, really saved my brothers and I, as I said, my, my father was incarcerated and, and uh, those role models that we had early on um, in the early education, in sports, uh, that made all the difference for us. For me to be able to see as a male, young boy, to see a positive male role model as a teacher or as a, a coach, and later on, as a as an NCO or an officer in the uh, in the army, as an 18 year old uh, young man, made all the difference in, in my life. And so, whatever I can do to support the investment in our children, I'm there. Now, I would assume, and you oversee all juvenile correctional facilities as as well as adult correctional facilities. I would assume, from a taxpayer perspective, it's more effective to invest in early childhood interventions than it is to invest later to house and take care of an inmate. Is, is that a fair assumption? Yes, it is. If we can assist those young people with um, nutritional needs, with um, potential learning disabilities, um, with any sort of educational um, necessity that they require, early on, we prevent all of that really um, unnecessary spending to incarcerate somebody. Because often, once somebody is incarcerated and the damage has been done, whether it be trauma or educationally or whatever brought them to uh, my doorstep, um, the, the, the cause is lost often. And so we often say some individuals do um, life on the installment plan, doing two or three years at a time throughout the duration of their life. And we must also remember that uh, this doesn't just impact the incarcerated person, but it's multi-generational. If I can assist um, someone and uh, to help them with substance use disorder or some uh, behavioral health issue or education, um, it, it helps their children. It also helps uh, their parents. And if we can nip that in the bud early on in someone's life, critically important, money well spent, and I'm here to support that. Now, you mentioned Maine Governor Janet Mills earlier, and I understand you're a member of her children's cabinet. Would you tell us a little bit about what a children's cabinet is in Maine? Yes, and so um, Governor Janet Mills made it a priority um, for us to convene and bring all of the different branches of the executive together. Um, we have a Department of Education, Department of Corrections, Department of Labor, Health and Human Services, um, all the individuals that uh, may assist uh, young people um, in their um, journey through life. And uh, we're identifying and, and, and recognizing what can we do for early um, childhood intervention for education, um, substance use disorder, um, any of the things that we can do to assist them as they navigate their young lives. And I, I found that to be very meaningful, identifying those, um, those initiatives and then going to the legislature seeking um, funding for those um, opportunities. 
Yeah, it would seem to be pretty important to, for the commissioner of corrections to be at the table shaping policies that help kids. Yes, it's, it's critically important because I see uh, the deep end of the system when those investments aren't made. And um, really unfortunate to have right now, I have uh, about 1,700 people in my care and um, we're spending an awful lot of money, about $208 million a year to incarcerate individuals when we know investing in prevention early on in a, in a child's life uh, can make all the difference. And so it's important for me to, to have sort of a reality check to the other people in the room saying to them that if we'd caught this earlier, we wouldn't have the problem that we have now uh, incarcerating people. I want to turn to that article because it was absolutely fascinating. And it's the reason we reached out to you to, to come on the podcast. And I do appreciate you being here. Uh, I think most people, when they think of prison food, they probably don't think of the healthiest fare. Uh, but you're doing something very different in Maine. And that article discussed it. But I'd love for you to talk more about that. Sure. I recognize that, um, like with the Army, um, correctional facilities, you know, sort of run on the bellies of, of the individuals there. And and um, critically important that we know that we have budgetary constraints. We know that it's challenging to provide the meals that we wish to, to provide. As you'd mentioned, uh, I'm a master gardener, um, I'm a beekeeper. I see the importance of nutrition and um, also producing food locally. And so when I was sheriff of Kennebec County, we managed a 40 acre garden that the, that the residents uh, maintained. And um, when I went to the Maine State Prison, we started on the same initiative. And I found that there are many community stakeholders, um, like nurseries in the area, um, that uh, when they have post-retail sort of seedlings that may be a little too big and they're going to compost, they donate those to me. And, and uh, the first year they donated 4,000 tomato plants, 3,000 pepper plants. And um, we began the gardening process. I collaborated with the University of Maine Cooperative Extension and they have taught now five different courses of master gardener programming for the residents. I have 40 master gardener um, residents in my care and um, we tend um, every inch of the ground inside the fence. And um, we've produced between all my facilities about 400,000 pounds of, um, of agricultural products for the residents. And um, when you go to the, uh, the main state prison, prison, for instance, and we go to Long Creek, and when you go to Mountain View, you go to the salad bar and you see a, a rich variety of vegetables for the residents um, to eat. And they've grown all of those. And there's a limitless salad bar. They can eat as much as they wish. And we know that the nutritional value is much, much better. And quite frankly, the carbon footprint is much shorter and smaller when um, we grow the products on our own. We compost all of our own organics. So if I'm feeding uh, a thousand meals at a sitting, I've got 3000 uh, plates of leftovers. Those all get rotated into our composting system and then rotated back in the soil. When I first arrived, the soil uh, inside the fence was something like you'd see on the side of the road, sandy, God knows the origins of it. Now, five years into it, rich organic soil that produces some of the best vegetables I've seen. And uh, to see the therapeutic and, um, um, value of our, of our uh, residents, to include military veterans there that are incarcerated, we have a veterans pod, and we have 64 veterans that are incarcerated there, um, co-located in a cohort sort of environment. And um, they, they share, they, they have a shared experience and that works well. When they garden, it's very therapeutic to them to take a seed and nurture that seed and uh, enjoy getting our fingers in the dirt, just like we do and having a, an actual um, product that they can um, share with others, feel proud with, uh, that goes a long ways. 
Well, I have to imagine it's an incredible therapeutic experience, as you pointed out. I know there have been veteran programs that have helped with PTSD when when people go back and farm and do those kind of activities. Uh, pretty incredible. What about, I, I have to also imagine that just improving the quality of the food for the for the residents has to help in rehabilitation uh, as well as better nutrition. Is, is that true? It's true. A um, couple of ways to look at this. Um, you know, to, for us to eat a head of cabbage that came from New Mexico, um, you know, thousands of miles away, as opposed to a seed that they nurtured and grew on their own and was freshly picked that morning um, is an amazing thing. And, and they receive a lot of pride in doing that. In addition to that, um, about 25% of what we grow is donated to local communities. And so we bring those, those nutrients to schools, food pantries, soup kitchens, and they feel as though they're giving back. Um, the veterans in particular, the food that they grow, um, they, they um, focus that on um, bringing those materials or those vegetables to vet centers and to Toga's VA so that they can enjoy the vegetables too. And they feel like they're giving back to the community. As it relates to veterans, we also have a veteran uh, canine program where they train service dogs in that vet pod for veterans on the outside. They become certified canine trainers. So there's a lot of good going on in addition to the agricultural program that we're doing. And um, I think there's much benefit to both the, the residents in our care and to the community that they serve. Oh, sounds absolutely incredible. So Randy, I want to hear a little bit more about the veterans programs, because I understand you've you've got special programs. And in fact, as you mentioned, a special pod dedicated to veterans. Tell, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. I think that it's critically important that we we support our veterans when they return. You know, I think that when we go off to war, everyone's waving the flags and, and tying the yellow ribbons. Um, in support, and that's wonderful. But we we also have to recognize that sometimes it's challenging to transition from war back into the community. Some of our veterans become police involved, and some of them, a minority of them, um, receive time uh, in in the main state department of corrections. And so I thought it was important for me to provide an opportunity to provide them. Um, transitional assistance. And so I have a pod at the main state prison. There are 64 inmates in that pod from all the branches and they benefit from that cohort environment where they have a shared experience. We have Vietnam vets there, Iraq and Afghanistan vets, and um, they, they do a lot, of, a lot of programming and a lot of work. One of the things that we do is we collaborate with the America Vet Dogs. And at any given time, we'll have eight to 10 labs, um, purebreds that are there. And um, we train those dogs for about 14 months. And those dogs, and I was formerly a canine handler in the, in the law enforcement community. Those dogs are the cleanest dogs that I've seen. Best trained dogs, turn on lights, shut lights off, go to the refrigerator, get something, retrieve something. Uh, they'll wake up a veteran if he's having night terrors, doing an awful lot of uh, work that way. And those are released back into the community uh, to disabled veterans. We also have an American Legion post, and that American Legion post is uh, memorialized for Sergeant Brian Buecher, who was a Green Beret in Vietnam, volunteered for a second tour. He was killed in action and received the Medal of Honor for, for heroism. And so um, he's from Maine, um, a lot of support for him here, and now we've, we've memorialized him by creating the American Legion post in his honor at the Maine State Prison. Awful lot of good work going on there. Um, we've had some good successes. We've been able to, we've been able to work well with the um, the veterans court at um, uh, in Augusta and uh, uh, assisting individuals in the transition back. So I just think it's important to support our veterans inside facilities, outside of the facilities, in recognition of their service to our country. Oh, thank you. That's incredible. 
Well, as you know, Randy, at Mission Readiness, the same with with your with the other organizations under that umbrella, we're very ardent defenders of federal nutrition programs that provide kids with access to fresh and nutritious food. And you've alluded to the fact that you've had some firsthand experience with some of these programs as a child. Would you mind sharing with our listeners why these programs are so important? Critically important. Um, in 1971, my mother was a, was a young mother with four children. My father was incarcerated at the Maine State Prison. And um, I think she tells me we had uh, we received a, a state check to the tune of $260, I think. And I can remember as a young man um, in January here in Maine, the... Um, the furnace rumbling at three in the morning. We run out of kerosene. We're a few days away from getting the our check from the from the feds, and um, you know, tough times. Um, back in the early seventies, uh, there were no food stamps. It was uh, it was surplus food, and so the, the the federal government would buy surplus agricultural products, and it would be stri- distributed by the main Army National Guard. And a bus would show up, and you'd have the block cheese, the 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 flour, the sugar, the molasses, all of those staples, and uh, that's what got us through. The federal programs providing those meals to us, and and uh, um, it really saved the day for us and provided the nutritional nutritional value that we required as young people. And in school, we received free hot lunch, and those were the best meals that we had of the day. And uh, that went on for quite some time for my brothers and I. And uh, those investments in nutrition for those four young boys made all the difference. Here we are now. Um, three out of the four of us joined the army. Um, we all were able to serve our country. Um, me in combat, my brothers, we've served in seven different countries. We've been able to, I, my brother retired, uh, active duty. I retired in the, in the reserve system. And um, I think that the investment that the, the nation made providing nutrients to us as young people um, has been paid tenfold. And um, I deeply appreciate that. Um, the, uh, the, the choice for the American people to feed us young folks that are in a desperate circumstance uh, the choice really is, do we provide that nutritious, nutritious value, um, the, the nutrients to those young people, or do we allow them to go hungry? In our case, those federal programs fed us. We didn't go hungry, and we were able to later serve our country, um, all three of us were, and it, uh, it made all the difference in our lives. Wow. You said it returned it tenfold. I think that vastly underestimates the great contribution you and your brothers have played to our nation and, and, and really does speak to the effectiveness of these programs and making sure kids don't fall through the cracks, that they get a decent meal, that they're able to grow up healthy and, and have options as adults like you all did to, to serve your country or do something else uh, if that's what they choose to do. It really speaks well. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. I would like to turn two questions that we ask all our guests. Uh, the first one is, is there a habit or some other routine you've adopted during this COVID pandemic that you plan to keep doing once things go back to whatever normal looks like after it's over? Sure. The, the habit that I've developed is uh, spending, always spending at least an hour in the woods. I live in rural Maine. Um, I have 29 acres of land. I have uh, 120 acre, 120. Um, apple trees or apple tree orchard and um, a lot of deer in the land. And um, so I spend uh, at least an hour in the woods every day. A nice calming effect. Um, you know, I have 1,200 employees, 1,700 residents, um, spending a lot of time in the legislature, um, you know, budgetary constraints. So for me, the, the perfect outlet for me is to go into the woods, spend time there with the animals um, and uh, just relax and, and collect my thoughts. And that's been very grounding for me. And I'm going to continue to do that as time goes on. Oh, that's a great habit. That's a great idea. We all should be doing more of that, frankly. 
Another question we've been asking all our guests, what books are you reading lately or what books might you recommend to our listeners? Yeah, so what I'm reading right now is um, the John Bazelone story. You know, I'm, stay- I'm staying with my boys. And it uh, talks about uh, John Bazelone, uh, Sergeant John Bazelone fighting in the Pacific. And he's a Medal of Honor winner. And um, he can be seen, his, his uh, heroics can be seen in the Pacific. And so I'm rereading that book right now. The other book that I've spent some time with recently is uh, The Tribe. And um, I love that book because it really speaks to, um, you know, the, the, the fellowship and the bonds that are made from with sharing time in combat with uh, your comrades and the bonds that are, are very difficult to uh, replicate in the civilian world. But it talks about that phenomena of the of, in my case, um, in the infantry back when I was in uh, that brotherhood of, uh, of, of combat veterans. And uh, it's priceless. And, and I very much enjoyed that book. Yeah, I've read Tribe. That is a great book. Thank you for recommending that. Well, let's end up on a little fun note. One of the most popular films of all time is The Shawshank Redemption, one of my yes. favorites, absolute favorites, which was based on the old Maine State Prison where you served. Now, I understand the old prison has since been replaced, but you served there as a warden before it was. Uh, was the main state prison anything at all like the one in Shawshank? Yes, very similar, very similar. And so uh, super cool um, to be able to spend time at the main state prison. And um, something that, that uh, are, are, you know, are, are different is the level of professionalism of my officers and the chain of command. That was different, you know, but the, but the, the stories and the, and the, the residents that live there um, can be very, very similar. Some nice parallels there, but uh, it's one of my favorite uh, uh, movies also. And whenever I've traveled around the world, um, it's really super cool to be able to talk to people from other nations and say, have you seen Shawshank? And they all have. And I said, I used to be the warden there. And uh, so super unique. And uh, obviously Stephen King is a main treasure as is that movie. Any suspicious movie posters on the walls of any of your inmates? Um, Some, no, 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 not, nothing like that. Um, uh, don't even talk the E word. Nobody wants anyone to escape. Um, so uh, no, nothing like that. But uh, it was super honored to, to work with the men and women that uh, uh, provide public safety through securing those individuals. Uh, and uh, they do a great job and it's an honor to serve. Well, Commissioner Randy Liberty, thank you so much for taking the time today to be on the Mission Readiness Podcast. I appreciate everything. We wish you the best as that program you've got. I suspect a lot of other states are going to be looking at similar programs inside their prisons to to grow their own food and improve the health of their residents as well. Thank you again for being on the podcast. Thank you. It's my honor. It's a pleasure to meet you all. Well, that was a great conversation, General Gross. You know, I I think um, what was so interesting to me is Commissioner Liberty had a firsthand experience um, as a kid with uh, nutrition programs and and, and understands inherently why giving a kid um, the right start in life is so, so important. But I also love that he's applying the lessons from his life experience to helping the, the, the prisoners that he's, he's that are in his care, um, that he's, that he's helping to try and put on the right track. Now, absolutely amazing story, Ben, and you're right. I mean, when he said that just having hot water induced him to join the U.S. military because it was something he had done without so often. Talked about getting those food packages and what a difference it made in his life. I mean, it really is 
not only a, a testament to the to the work that we're doing and, and, and other organizations are doing to make sure kids have the, the proper nutrition, but just a testament to him personally to overcome all that adversity as a kid and, and end up such a such an amazing citizen today. So I, I just an incredible conversation. Absolutely. And, you know, we talk all the time at Mission Readiness about the the pathway to opportunity and the pathway to the middle class that uh, the military provides and the vital role in these programs and helping kids to even be able to qualify and get in the door. And I think this is just one of the most incredible stories I've, I've heard about uh, the opportunity and that and that that ladder. Absolutely. Well, we'll hope our listeners will continue to join us as we talk to another great guest next week. Please subscribe to the Mission Readiness Podcast wherever you get your podcast, and we'll see you next week.